Hello, I'm Chris Kreitschow, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode for Rust 1.27, which is another big release, if not quite as big as 1.26 was, still very significant in the evolution of the language. So let's start by digging into the stabilizations for the language itself that landed in 1.27. The first big new stable feature is one I mentioned briefly in the news episode for Rust 1.25. SIMD is now available on stable Rust. Back in 1.25, the old feature flags for unstable variants of SIMD were deprecated in preparation for stable SIMD landing. And the first step of stable SIMD happening is now with Rust 1.27. For a basic intro to SIMD itself, you can go back to that Rust 1.25 news episode, and for the full stabilization plan, you can look at RFC 2325. Here I'm focusing on what actually landed in Rust 1.27, which is a subset of the full available set of features SIMD provides. The Rust compiler via LLVM already does a lot of the quote-unquote vectorization that SIMD gives you, parallelization of the process across all available processing units, because everything in the vector in question can be safely processed in parallel. Note that when we use vector in the context of SIMD, it's used in the fundamental computer science sense, not just in the Rust data type sense, though of course Rust's vector data type is certainly a candidate for this kind of parallelization. However, Rust-C and LLVM cannot always tell that something is safe to vectorize, so some functions and loops and so on which could in principle be vectorized are not in practice. The newly stabilized standard ARC for architecture, standard library module, exposes some primitives which let you access the quote-unquote SIMD intrinsics for a number of platforms. An intrinsic is a function that is intrinsic or built into the language or compiler. In this case, the intrinsics are actually built into the architecture, all the way down at the processor level. They're intrinsic to the CPU itself. You can use the currently stabilized set of SIMD intrinsics with the config attribute applied to use statements to get specific versions of a given function at compile time, or on the declaration of a function to choose at runtime for when a given architecture may or may not support the intrinsics in question, depending on the age of the machine in question, like the x86 line. Some x86 processors do, and some are old enough that they do not support SIMD. This new module also exposes a number of convenience helpers, like the is arc feature detected, so is x86 feature detected macro, which lets you generate code with fallback for when you want to use a feature if it's available on your architecture and do something else if it's not. The upshot of this, for most Rust users, is that a bunch of the libraries you use are going to get faster, automatically as far as you're concerned. You can use these intrinsics yourself, the new APIs here, where it makes sense, but it's not a most programs most of the time concern. At the same time, there are plans to eventually expose higher-level APIs on top of these low-level primitives, so that will make it easier for an average developer to use them. And those kinds of changes have the possibility to make it relatively easy for us to go even faster than it does today. The other big language feature, Dyn Trait, is a complement to the Impultrate feature released last time in 1.26. Dyn Trait is the official replacement for the bare trait syntax. That is, wherever you might have written something like box iterator or 
ampersand iterator to get a reference to that trait type in the past. Now you would write box dyne iterator, D-Y-N, or ampersand dyne iterator instead. The motivation for this change is twofold. One is that in combination with Impultrate, it makes static versus dynamic dispatch explicit and symmetric. You can always tell in this new world when you're looking at a given reference to a trait, whether it'll be dynamically dispatched at runtime or statically dispatched, monomorphized into distinct functions at compile time. Dyn trait for dynamic trait will be dynamically dispatched, thus the name. Impel trait will be statically dispatched. The fact that it's symmetric is nice. Both forms have a short keyword in front of the trait name. But the fact that it's explicit takes us to the second reason that this change was made. The bare trait version we've had since Rust 1.0 and even before was something of a foot gun for people. It was a place where it was easy to shoot yourself in the foot because you didn't realize the consequences of what you might be tempted normally to write. Box some trait or ampersand some trait are ultimately ambiguous, and their performance characteristics are ambiguous as well. They could be referring to a pointer to a normal type, a struct or an enum, or they could refer to a trait object. We'll talk more about trait objects and the related concept of object safety in the upcoming Traits Deep Dive Part 3 episode. Here it's enough to note that that ambiguity, is this a normal reference or a trait object? And should I write impl some trait for some other trait? Or should I be writing impl generic over t, some trait for t, where t implements some other trait? I, I don't know which one of those I should always write. They're different things, though. One is implementing things for a trait object. The other is for a constrained generic. But the shorter one, impl some trait for some other trait, and therefore the one you're more likely to write the first time, is actually usually not what you want. More often, you want the generic, not the trait object. There's a lot more to say here. That's why there's another episode coming up to cover all of this in more detail. The takeaway for today on this particular change is that anywhere you had a bare trait name in argument or return position before, you now need to change it to be dyne trait instead, at least assuming you want to keep the same dynamic dispatch dynamics you've had in the past. Because you now have both dyne trait and impel trait at your disposal, though, it's much easier to switch between the two as makes sense in the specific context of your program and have that switch be explicit. The last couple language changes of interest that landed in 1.27 were all to do with attributes. The first of these is that you can now put the must-use attribute on any function, not just any type. With this change, you can require, via the lint that the compiler has for must-use, that the result of your function be checked, even when you might not want to require that for every use of the type that the function returns. And in the case of a third-party type, you wouldn't even be able to do that. The other stabilization is that you can now put attributes on generic parameters like lifetimes and types. This is a pretty obscure feature, and it's likely to remain that way in general, but it will be very useful for procedural macros, and that of course is the main place you'll see heavy use of attributes anyway at this point. So that's it for language stabilizations. There have also been a couple interesting library stabilizations, and the biggest one of these in 1.27 is standard ARC for architecture, which we already talked about as the module exposing the new SIMD tooling. The others include the normal gamut of small niceties that we get every six weeks. There were a few here that caught my eye, but as usual, you should see the full release notes for all of them. 
The new iterator try fold and iterator try for each methods are short circuiting versions of their non try equivalents, fold and for each. Where fold requires that you have a non fallible function and you're responsible to manage the case where you failed on an earlier iteration yourself, so you have to pass along an error and then do the right thing with it, trifold will just stop and return from the iterator immediately if there's a failure. And the same thing goes for try for each. For each keeps applying the closure that you supply to it no matter what. So you have to do some extra work yourself if you don't want to perform the operation if there's been a failure along the way. Try for each just returns immediately if you return an error. And these are very handy changes for pretty common real-world scenarios with iterator operations. A lot of times you don't want to keep going and you don't want to execute the rest of the iterator, especially if it's large, if you fail early. String replace range is exactly what it sounds like. It lets you replace a specified range within a string. You are, of course, responsible for making sure that you're on a character boundary, though. This method will panic if your range starts or ends in the middle of a character. UTF problems, yay! Finally, of the ones I'm going to talk about, Option filter is just like iterator filter, which is in fact implemented for option, but you don't have to call dot iter or dot into iter and then dot collect to get the result. So it's potentially lower overhead, though whether Rust compiles that away or not is perhaps a different question, but in any case, it's definitely more convenient. Again, for the other stabilizations in the standard library, see the release notes, which are linked from the show notes. There are also some nice small tweaks to the Rust documentation this go-around. First is something I've desperately wanted for a couple years, the ability to search all of the Rust documentation. You've been able to search API docs for a long time, but you haven't been able to search Rust's books. And this has been a constant source of low-level pain for everyone, but it has perhaps especially driven me nuts because it's something I look at a lot when I'm trying to find the right page to link to in show notes. This change is most welcome. The other documentation-related change is that there's now a guide for invoking Rust-C, the Rust compiler, directly. It gets its own dedicated book. Most of us use Cargo for all of our build interactions most of the time. But there are lots of times when you want to use Rust-C directly, especially if you're including it in another build pipeline where the ongoing work to make Cargo integrate with your build pipeline isn't done yet. So this guide should be very helpful for that purpose. Talking about documentation also makes for a nice segue into the last major topic for this week's episode, the Rust 2018 Edition Preview. We are getting close to the target release for the edition. It was planned to be 1.29, and we'll see if that happens or if it ends up slipping a little later, but we're getting close, and as such, there's an early alpha release out for testing. So if you want to make sure the Rust 2018 edition release is as solid as it possibly can be, and we should all want that, you should set up the release preview using the Rust 2018 preview crate level feature flag on Nightly, and try out the various tweaks and improvements landing in the next few months. To do that, you just add the attribute feature Rust 2018 preview to the top of your lib.rs or main.rs file and compile in Nightly. There's an announcement post in the Rust Internals Forum, and there's also a Rust 2018 Edition Guidebook in those Rust docs. Both of those are linked in the show notes, of course, and together they'll give you the current status of the preview and guide you through some of the changes. 
To go with this, you'll also want to install the RustFix tool, and this will do some nice automatic code modification changes for you. You can just cargo install cargo fix and then run cargo nightly fix with the argument prepare for 2018. Run that on your crate and it'll correctly and losslessly update your code base in place. This process will probably be familiar to those of you who are in the cutting edge of the JavaScript ecosystem. Code mods have become fairly common there for migrating between versions of packages or even language level changes. Same in Reason. But it's fairly new for Rust, so you should definitely give this a try and report any errors or bugs or problems. It's also directly relevant to the Dyn trait change I mentioned a couple minutes ago. CargoFix can make that fix for you. The current set of Rust 2018 features which work right now include the stable changes we talked about earlier in this episode and in the Rust 1.26 news episode. Impultrate, Dynetrate, SIMD, improved match ergonomics, and inclusive ranges and slice patterns. So that's a lot already. The features on Nightly include some done but not yet stable features, which I'll cover when they stabilize. And those are the module system improvements, simplified lifetime declarations, and the new RustFix tool I just mentioned. Last, there are the non-lexical lifetimes project and inference for struct lifetimes for struct fields, and those are still works in progress. So I'll talk about those when they're done and stable as well. Notice that I didn't have time to cover any community updates. There's too much happening in Rust right now, and that's a really great place to be. Once again, I'll just commend to you This Week and Rust and the Rusty Spike podcast, both of which give weekly updates covering a much broader swath of the community changes. Also, I've mentioned this before, but I want to commend it again. Check out Matthias Endler's Hello Rust for some really awesome video learning materials. As always, thanks so much to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors included, and they've been shuffled again, and that's how it's going to be from now on. Daniel Collin, Nick Stevens, Peter Tillemans, Chip, Zachary Snyder, Alexander Payne, Paul Naranja, Sasha Grunert, Hans Fjallamark, Daniel Mason, Martin Huschober, David W. Allen, Dan Abrams, Benam Esabode, Aaron Turon, Matt Rudder, Derek Buckley, Vesa Kalavirta, John Rudnick, Olaf Leidinger, Anthony Deschamps, Rafe Levine, Marshall Clyburn, Damian Stanton, Nathan Scully, Ramon Buckland, Ryan Osiel, Olushe Shonaya, and Chris Palmer. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can do like a couple of the people on that list I just read have done and send a one-off my way at any of a number of other services listed at the website. Even more importantly, and I mean that, please let other people know about the show. You can tell them at a meetup, you can share it around in whatever media, social or otherwise that you use, or you can review and recommend it in your podcast directory of choice. Show notes for this episode are available at neurastation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore one underscore 27. The website also has scripts and code samples for most of the teaching episodes and transcripts for many of the interviews. The show's on Twitter at neurastation. I'm there at Chris Kreitcho. Do tweet at me with news and ideas. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, Reddit, and Hacker News. I got a correction for something I said wrong in the last teaching episode that way, and I really appreciate it. More on that next time. And of course, you can always just send me an email at hello at neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding. <laughs>